whenever you get into autopilot or that's the way we've done stuff, ask the question, what do I need to do my best work? And if half the meetings are not doing anything for you, in most cases, you could just stop them. But that comes back to trust and inner confidence to do try and do the right thing. If you're really clear, often if you have the right people who can think about those big goals and then look into the business and saying, what's getting in the way of those goals? That's what leadership for me is about. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from David Lansfield. He's a CEO catalyst, a strategist and a coach. He's a speaker, board advisor. He's also found time to be a contributor to Harvard Business Review and be a guest lecturer at the London Business School. He had a corporate career with PwC and Strategy And, and then went on his own a couple of years ago. And today we're going to talk about a number of things, how his work as a catalyst and coach in some way overlaps with mine. We help clients solve similar problems. And the ones we chat about today are scaling up and what that means for empowerment, culture, teams, strategy, alignment of those things, how a new leadership team comes together and gets to agree on the way forward, how and why maybe M&A or creating new teams works and doesn't work, and how to set priorities. How How do you bring a team together to agree on the few things that the team needs to do well. It's a fascinating conversation. I could have talked to David all day. And if you want more from David, then have a look at the show notes at monkhouseandcompany.com for a link to his website and I think excellent newsletter. So here's me and David. Enjoy. Hi, I'm David Lancefield. I'm a catalyst strategist and coach. I work with CEOs, senior professionals and executives, helping them become more extraordinary, focusing on strategy, innovation, leadership, culture, I originally come from Dorset, which I'm very proud of, and now I live just outside London, which I'm reasonably proud of. And do you get back to Dorset much? Not as much as I'd like. My parents are still there, nearly nearly 80s, but um, I'm still a big fan of it. And uh, and I can do the accent later on if you want me to, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. And you're a, you say you're a catalyst. What does that mean to you? Igniting new ideas, fresh thinking challenging the way people think about how they work how they how they play how they live live their lives but sort of an injection of ideas so it's not so when i work with people it's not about just holding a mirror up to them it's like really saying what do you think what could happen imagining new possibilities for their organization their team being challenging being stimulating that's the idea how did you end up doing this 
for a living? As of now, I took a decision. I'm going to answer a different way to perhaps you may, may think. I took a decision <laughs> a couple of years ago to try some new things. I've been a management consultant for nearly 25 years and enjoyed large parts of it, actually most of it, to be honest. I thought, I want to learn some more things. I was not getting stale, but I could see myself getting a bit stale. Um, secondly, I wanted to work more closely with some of the executives as opposed to having big, big teams of people, which if you're a senior partner in a consultancy, that's that's the game. And also life decision. I have a very disabled son and I wanted some more flexibility in my life. I still wanted to work as well as I can, but I wanted some flexibility. And so now it's around finding the people who, I guess, value what I bring to them and value our interactions. It's not just the content of what I do, but it's also do we get each other? And I'm in a lucky position where I can they can choose and I can choose. So it's for me, it's about, I mean this sincerely, it's about quality of interaction and quality of work rather than just trying to maximise my income or maximise the hours hours in the day. Do you feel as though you've got the balance right? I mean, could you work harder if you, if you wanted to? So speaking practically, it would be hard at the moment because we don't have the care team to support us. Um, there's a carer crisis in the UK for, for disabled people. So that would be hard. And I'm not willing to outsource the care for my son. I could always work smarter, but I think the balance is pretty pretty good in the sense of I, my clients will tell me. I mean, they, they pay the bills. They work with me. They recommend me. I work with four CEOs at the moment, more executives, and then their teams on how to uplift their organization. And for me, it's a balance of making sure I'm still doing work as opposed to just talking about it or writing about it. I think you've got to be current. I didn't want to be some of the people I've met during my career who candidly are talking about what they've done in the last five years. I said, like, what are you doing now? Well, I'm I'm now on a stage or now writing a book about it or I want to be current. So that's the balance, which is quite tricky to get. Hands on. I find it incredibly rewarding to do work with CEOs and their teams. It's just, it, you know, yes, I I read loads and create content, but I think it's to an end, which is to make me have a bigger impact, help them get where they're trying to get to quicker, I guess. What types of challenges are you working with your CEOs and teams with at the moment? What are some of the things we could dig into and unpack that are challenges that are current for people? So I think something about clarity. Yeah, a lot of, I think one media organization I'm focusing on working at the moment, they are have no shortage of opportunity. They're doing really well, but clarity about where they focus their energies and prioritization. That's one topic. Second one would be a new leadership team, all sort of nodding in the right, nodding, nodding at the right time, saying, yes, we all agree, but actually their actions day to day are not coherent with the strategy. So how do you bring a leadership team together? That really is a team rather than just a collection of individuals who are performing at the certain moments, which is what most leadership teams do. That's the second one. Third one would be about workplace culture, particularly in a hybrid environment, and how to make that hum when you are setting a new strategy, a new direction for you. How do you connect to the two? No point being in a fun, loving place that's actually heading in the wrong direction. That's the third. And I guess the other one would be how do you, when you're scaling up an organisation, how do you empower people to share their best ideas, make decisions in a way that's not just a random random walk or just chaos, but has the right direction? So quite a lot of founder-led businesses um, talk a good game on this, but actually are very directional. We are going to do this, you're going to do that. So how's your scaling organization? How do you give people the right space 
and the amount of responsibility and empowerment to innovate. That's a big topic that I'm covering with a number of organizations. Because otherwise that founder leader is the bottleneck in that organization. Many of these founders are inspirational people. There'll be a time where you say, oh, I want to learn from him or her. But then after a while, most people don't want to work in a box. You want to, to use the term, you want to craft your job and your role in a way and actually say, I come into work, say, I've got some ideas. How do I share them rather than having everything coming from the top of the organization? Yeah. Should we start with culture? Hmm. Hybrid culture. Do you have a preference? Are you more Elon Musk? You know, his Twitter from last week saying, uh, you know, if you don't like it, go and pretend to work somewhere else. Is that, do you have a sort of philosophical stance on office or home or or do you have a more nuanced lens? I have these spikes of feeling very strongly about these topics and then I go away back (laughs) into my box. When I feel strongly, I rile against the, you have to be in an office mentality. I think it often betrays a lack of trust of micromanagers. And so there is a place for an office uh, as a space for people to physically come together, build good relationships, and just be you know, a sense of belonging togetherness that, frankly, I don't think you can quite get um, working remotely. However, I think given our experience over the pandemic, we're wherever you are in the world, if you like, the premium and the expectation on the office has gone up. If you're going to have to spend money to get there, and you know you can work well at home, you know, so tell me why the office is better. And either that's the physical environment or it's the people you know are going to be there or the opportunities to do things that perhaps you can't do at home. But there are a lot of myths. You know, this thing around, oh, in, you've got me going now. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try and rile it in. But, you know, this thing around, oh, you can't have a deep and meaningful conversation unless you're in an office. That's nonsense. I've had some of the most deepest coaching conversations working remotely. Similarly, you can't do creative work unless you're physically in a co-creation space in an office. Let's be clear, that helps, that can help, and I've done great work physically. If you look at the organisations that have sort of grown up digital and grown up you know, remote or hybrid, they're pretty creative. The issue is that many large, typically large and traditional organisations have a series of norms around how people work, which is your output and your impact is largely based on how much I see of you and how much effort you put in. I'm caricaturing it a bit, but that's that's not... It's recency bias. Yeah. You know, you know I've, I see you in the office. I see you working. People tell me you're doing a good job. Tick. Exactly. But imagine if you were an individual where either on your own in your team, you delivered an impact. It could be a financial result or launching a new product or initiative or generating purpose in you know in in your local community, whatever the type of organisation you're in, and you found a really clever way of doing it within an hour or two, and then you could go and either do something else for the organisation, so in another team, or perhaps recharge your batteries. In most organisations, they talk a game around outcomes and impact, but the game is around input. And so, I think the challenge for traditional organisations is how can you make the office experience really hum in a world where our expectations are higher. And challenge yourself if you're a manager or a leader in that organization to, why do I really need them to be here? And to be really clear, Dom, there will be moments, I think, where you need to be together. It could be just a bonding of a team where, frankly, sometimes being in person helps. There may be some sensitive discussions sometimes in certain organizations where actually being on-premise matters. But it's not all the time. 
it's not all the time. So when these leaders come up and say, you must be in the office because either you're work shy and other things, and we've seen that from bankers, from government officials and so on, look at the causes. There's a trust issue, there's a productivity issue, there's a lack of belonging, and the office is just a sort of a manifestation of it. I think what happens often is we get caught up in the averages. So, you know, look, most employees, the majority of employees are not A players, and the majority of employers are a bit rubbish, and most employees are not engaged at work, and most of them see it as a job and not a calling, and most organizations aren't purpose-led. And so I could see how most people... I, I was reading an article this morning, some guy who joined Cognizant in the US, you know, was upset because he joined during the pandemic. He'd done his job well during the pandemic. And now they said he needed to go back to the office and he was thinking, why should I bother? And I think about the commute as a tax you pay on your culture. So if your culture is not good enough for people to pay the commute tax, then it's on you and it's not on them, right? Have, do you actually want to be one of those businesses that's in the top five or 10%? of places where great people want to go to work because if you do then you'll do it and if you don't then all like do you know what i mean we're having you're having two different conversations about two different types of employees two different types of companies you know and i think elon musk is in that sort of top five to ten percent he's saying look we've got 13 million cvs of great people who want to come and work here and want to work in an office and if you're the type of person who doesn't want to work in an office go work somewhere else it's fine people have got a choice yeah i agree i think if you as a, the founder or CEO or leader of a, an organization makes that choice, that's your gift. I mean, you, but there, there are implications. Yeah. You may restrict your pool of talent, may, not always, but may restrict your pool of talent. And when you then talk about topics around inclusion and diversity and flexible working in the same breath, you then say, well, so if this person, for example, wants to, whether you have, say you have children, and you want to do a drop-off, but then work later, but still do, in this input world, the same number of hours, but shifted differently. If you then insist that everyone gets into the work at a certain time, you are going to be restricting those people who will say, either it's going to be harder, I feel more uncomfortable, I don't feel as I have as much belonging, or I won't join. I mean, I remember taking a risk here. In my former organization, you can look it up, certain meetings that had to be in the office at a certain time. And, and you look back on, and some of them were important. They were important conversations, and there was a sense of camaraderie. Some, others, like I could have heard that on a on a voicemail, or in a on a call, or just read an email. But there was something around, I'm commanding you to be in this place as a sort of sign of strength. And it's like, you know, geez, really? I, I, grown ups here. Uh, you see, it's funny because I I think back to one of my earlier jobs working for Glaxo Smith Klein as a drug rep and head office used to mandate that we would see five GPs, two practice nurses and a pharmacist every day. And the reps used to say, well, you know, I would then ha I have to go and see lots of GPs who really aren't worth my time seeing. They're never going to prescribe the drugs I'm trying to persuade them to prescribe. You're making me talk to people that I shouldn't talk to because you're forcing me to do five. Mm. And so eventually they said, okay, we'll go and see whoever you need to go and see. We'll go outcome-based and we'll just see what happens. And it all just went off a cliff because without that forcing you to see five, you didn't see the two that you needed to see or lots of people didn't. Generally, what happened was the, visit, the visits went to almost, well, they just fell off a cliff and so did sales. And so they said, right, well, that was an interesting experiment. Let's go back to where we were before. 
And so there's something about it's really much easier to work in an environment where people do give you some of those really specific guide rails. You know, you, you don't have to think too hard. You just have to put the inputs in. And again, if you're a solid employee, if you're a B player, not setting the world on fire, but, you know, 60 to 85% attainment, you're never going to get fired. You're doing enough. I mean, that's, that's most employees in most companies. But why, why is it? I mean, I take your point. And so you might say there's certain types of jobs or roles or professions where having more bounds and more guard guardrails, if you like, helps. And I get that to a degree. But at the same time, why should there be so many B players? And there are so many great examples of people who, who have been given the right encouragement and the right support, go from being D players to A players. I mean, my mum, for example, who's nearly 80, she's a maths teacher in Dorset. Mention that again. <laughs> she, she, folks, she still teaches A-level maths to kids who are typically from difficult backgrounds who are getting E's and she moves them up to B's, occasionally A's, right? A lot of the time it's about showing care and attention and actually working out how they can do their best work. So I take the point that as if you take a static view of a workforce and there are segments, you know, the best people, some of the people are mediocre, then actually there may be environments where you say, right, put some clear objectives point them in the right direction and push, push, push. That'll work to a degree. I just think we could have a bit more, I'm challenging you here, Don. You know, I, I think a bit more progressive view, which is what would it take for these people to be extraordinary? Totally. And so two things that seem to me never get very much attention. Most of the people in management roles in most of the companies that I come across have never had any training in what that means or how to get the best from their people ever. They're a sole contributor who's either been the longest person in the job or was the best person doing, best person in sales, best person sales, in Sales, and then suddenly become a management. Be a manager. Be a great leader. Oh, what do I do? <laughs> no, no idea. Particularly in organizations that are scaling up, you know, growing 100% year over year, hiring people hand over fist. It's just incredible how any of them don't sort of implode there are big gaps in development. I mean, we a lot of organizations focus on technical development or maybe sales or general management skills, time management, and so forth. But when you get to the more senior levels, some of the topics that come up day in, day out for me are around how do you manage conflict better? So if you're in an organization with a psychological safety, all that work from Amy Emerson, people will share more of their views and share dissenting views. How do you both encourage it professionally constructively and then how do you harness it I, that comes up all the time i don't know how because i i'm fearful about what they will say or perhaps it will just explode so how the point is there's very little constructive training or development around how do you start the conversation so imagine a conversation where it went along these lines we've got a tricky topic today which is to how to grow this part of the business um, i brought together a team of people who i fully believe in we've got a great range of skills backgrounds interests I'm not sure what the answer is, but I believe that if we have a really good discussion over the next 45 minutes on these questions, whatever the questions are, we'll come up with, we'll get closer to the answer. And by the way, if we disagree, fantastic. What I'd encourage everyone to do is to properly listen. So avoid the interruption, properly listen, not just listening for to wait for, you, wait for your turn, and actually listen and build or challenge each other. And when we challenge each other, it doesn't mean that we're going to lose our friendships. 
It just means we have a different perspective. Now, that took about, I don't know, a minute perhaps. And I'm not suggesting it's a script, although it could be. Uh, <laughs> but imagine, however, how many conversations, however, go, right, we've got 45 minutes. We need to do this. Right, let's go. What do you think? Or somebody drones on with a long presentation talking about a particular point of view. And then you say, any questions? And either they're really powerful or you're bored or you don't know what they're asking you. And so you get a few polite questions of, what did you mean by that? And it's it's, it's theatre. It's theatre. Yeah. And in the end, you're no closer to a group answer. You may be closer to the individual's answer, but all it takes in that moment is careful framing of a conversation. Now, it takes repetition and time and many interactions to do that. You can't If somebody's fearful in an organization or never had an opportunity to contribute, you don't suddenly necessarily switch, switch them to go, oh, yes, oh, yeah, here's everything I'm going to do. It takes time. But what it requires is a, I call it a more strategic approach. Choose your moment to encourage debate and dissent. And all it care, in that case is about careful framing. The second thing, just briefly, I'd say is once you have that debate and discussion, and you can teach people that quite quickly, you can role play it, you can practice. When, when you get into the debate, how you respond to different views really, really matters. So a lot of people will say, oh, I love alternative opinions. I love, I love <laughs> the debates, right? And then when it happens, the look on you look at their eyes. It's like, how dare you? You've come up with it. I've been I've been here for 30 years. How dare you challenge my and it gets very personal. It goes from challenging it goes very personal very quickly. Yeah, to I'm challenging your authority, my credibility, my background, my heritage, my everything. And so there's something around, okay, stay in the moment. Stay in the moment of let's talk about the issue, not the person. And actually switch your brain from being defensive about it. Right, I'm going to challenge you back and I'm going to, we have a ding-dong too. Let's create something. So defensive to like offensive. And the offensive is we're here to create something better than any of us have got developed already. And if you can, and I've done this with an executive recently, you literally depersonalize it and create it like a, like a thing that's sort of separate from you could be the topic. We're not growing fast enough. Our culture's broken. Our leadership team's not effective. You actually focus on the problem as opposed to getting right inside of you. Now, those two moments of framing and responses can make a massive difference on how people work and how they feel about work, but it does require development. And I think a lot of the cases, to your earlier point, right back at the beginning of this, my long monologue, is around people are just expected to do it. Manage dissent, be creative, be innovative, be inspiring. It's like, well, okay, where do I start? What I think interesting about that scenario that you outlined is that the whole team is on a journey. Those two people start to disagree. I'm the senior person in the room. So although I've brought the problem, the fact that there's a problem is probably down to me. And so I'm already taking it personally. And you are all thinking the same thing. And then people start to articulate and not listen. So very, very quickly it goes, I'm shouting at you, you're shouting at me, nobody's listening. And anyway, I always thought you were a dick. And, and then, then we're not speaking ever again. <laughs> yeah. and, and so without somebody in the room being able to facilitate, it's very difficult. People fall into behavior patterns. I've had executive teams without somebody from the outside being able to help them break the behavior pattern and show them the points at which they could have all interceded. It's very difficult to see, to change the pattern in a team without, without somebody helping you. Yes, 
I think it definitely can help with the beginning. And I think, but it does require on the part of, for example, a chair or a leader of a team to go a bit deeper into what people are thinking or feeling. Or And I'll use the word carefully, but curiosity. It's curiosity and, and a belief. And Nancy Klein talks about this and having done some work with her, you know, of time to think where she took, she talks about creating thinking environments where you don't interrupt you do actually, you're curious about what people think. If you have that belief system, which is, if I ask the right question, an incisive question, I hold my attention to them and I listen attentively, I think a great point may come up. If you don't have that fundamental belief that somebody on the other side of the table or the screen has something to offer, you might as well not have a team. But it does require a degree of patience and thought and consideration as to if I create as the leader the conditions for which people feel want to contribute, can contribute, and so on, then I think we'll have some amazing ideas. Whereas I think there's a lot of, I remember talking to Gary Hamill about this. Gary said, you know, there's a lot of arrogance in leadership teams, especially when it comes, for example, setting strategy. I've got a big committee of people, but actually I'm the CEO. I know the answer on my own because I'm cleverer, brighter, I work harder than everyone else. If that's your game, you will have a team around you, but effectively there'll be lots of, it's not really a team. It's a team of sort of doers. That whole mentality becomes self-serving because you will only hire people who say yes. And therefore it will absolutely be true that you do set the strategy all on your own and all of the other numpties in your team are unable to contribute. Yeah, and, and you know what that happens is you get bad ideas, you get lots of, nobody really wants to deliver it because they're so scared of you, you get overconfidence, lots of biases come in, and Michigan's. Whereas, if you it comes back to, will you invest the time to create the conditions to do for people to do great work? It's a bit like building a house. Do you actually spend the time building the foundations, or do you just just put lovely furniture in when it gets there? You know, a great story that I heard, not from him, but but of him. One of the guys I had on as, as a guest, he pays people ten percent more than they ask for. So you know, like the carpenter comes around or the plumber and he'll say you know how much is it going to cost me to to do this uh joel weldon who's uh, a speech coach in the u.s and at, in his 80s still semi-pro water skier uh so and so he didn't tell me the story but somebody was telling me about him and saying you know it's fantastic because then people don't treat you as a job that you know he, he said somebody oh, i need you to put this slide up for the kids swimming pool and and he he said, well, what would, if you did it, how much would it cost you to do? And he said, oh, it'd be way more than I was charging you because I'd use stainless steel bolts. He said, well, I want you to do that then. I want you to do the job as if it was your in your house. And so you just get it, you get into a different conversation about people then wanting to do their best work for you rather than trying to do it, trying to do it on the cheap. That, that's a great example because that, that illustrates, if you like, a, re, a reframe of a typical interaction a, a different way of interacting and it comes back to how you open a conversation with somebody or open a team discussion if you said to somebody in the beginning what would it take for us to do some amazing work on this project so what not why so what is an open question is an open question what would it take for us to do great work and how can we work together to, to do that work simple questions and obviously you make it more specific according to your context. But too often people are not encouraged to share their opinions or there's a model that's assumed. I remember doing some of my best project work where we actually spent half an hour, a bit longer, saying when we're at our best, what are we and who are we around the table? You can do it for hours, but we did it quite short. And then you ask the question, 
what do I need from each of you to do my best work? And the answers were fascinating. Some were very, you know, predictable, if you like, around, oh, I need clarity on deadlines and so fine. Others were like, I need some space in the afternoons because I'm a bit more of a morning person. I struggle with some of the afternoons or I need to leave by this time because I go dancing in the evenings and then I'll come back online. And it gave a sense of who the person was and what it would take to do their great work. And all it required is one question. Well, and that question is a question that Wipro tried when they did a piece of work on new hire and onboarding in in India. They asked people when they got those onboarding groups together, they said, how do we get the best from you? When were you at your best? What do I do and what, who am I when I'm at my best? Yeah. Yeah. And they found that that impacted people all the way through their first 12 months just by doing that exercise for 20 minutes. The first 20 minutes of the onboarding in that group changed the emotional state of those new employees for, for 12 months. Cost nothing. Fascinating. New leadership teams. I'm not sure that that, the way you framed that, that the new leadership team and the old leadership team challenge is different. But because quite often I work with CEOs who are looking to change the behaviors of their team. And is it easier with a new team because they just haven't, they're not in a groove or are the challenges the same? I think typically when you have a new team, there's more of a mind. So new team being either you've been appointed from within or you've recruited people or a combination of both of them. I think in most cases, there's more of a, there's more of a mindset of creation we want to create a new version of this organization. Whereas when you have an existing team, you're trying to propel their performance to the top quartile or grow the business. But unless you challenge existing norms, assumptions about how you think, like quite profoundly, you effectively are refining the existing, I think in different buckets, you're effectively often look, refining or polishing the existing core business. So we talk, you know, I talk about core business, some growth opportunities, and then really exploring and imagining new possibilities. With an existing team, the question I'd ask is, how do you get people to rethink how you make money, how you work, without some new stimulus or provocation? You can do it. Whereas if you have a new team, I think you're coming in saying, okay, I'm coming from outside in. I've come from a different sector, different ecosystem, a small organization. I'm now looking at you afresh right, what can we take from the existing organization as we try and build the new? new? I think that perspective is hard. Now, the challenge, however, from a new team is getting that agreement can often take longer because you people come in, are hired for different roles. What they see when they get in is different to what they've been promised, all that sort of stuff. So it may take longer. However, the range of possibilities they explore, I mean, I've got a, is, is often wider. I've got a, you know, working with a team at the moment where, it's sort of a third, a third, a third. One third brand new, one third being within, been in the organization one to five years, and then the final third, five and beyond. It's very easy to assume that the new the new third are the one with the bright ideas, and in many cases they are. The challenge, however, is to how to bring together and bind that team together, because actually some of the old guard have, frankly, not had the opportunity or not created the opportunity to think, but actually they're very creative underneath it. But I do believe underneath all of this is if you try and have a mindset of we want to create something new and then what do we take from the existing is it's an easier place than just, oh, this is what we are. What do we tweak and change? Yeah, stop, start, continue. It's a bit like when you do work work on, on culture, especially if you have a merger between your two organizations. 
I'm working with a consultancy who's done that. If you say, oh, what part of my organization can I, that was really good can I take with yours? And you get this sort of bragging rights of, oh, I'm really, we're really good at innovation. We're really good at um, financial management, whatever. What you're doing is limiting yourselves to the two versions of the organization and sort of copy-pasting each other. The reality is you're trying to, you bought two businesses to create something to win in the marketplace. So you should be thinking out one year, three year, five years and saying, okay, imagine if we are winning for our customers in these particular segments or these geographies, what would it take to do? And how much of our two organizations will get us there? And in most cases, there's a gap. So in these cases, they are not systematic about how they acquire clients. However, they collaborate pretty effectively between the two of them. If you start, however, with two organizations with a sort of, what are we good at? You limit yourself to, and often at risk of disruption because you're not thinking too uh, far enough ahead. When you say you work with that new team of leaders and they find it, it takes longer to pull together an answer that they buy into. Mm. Are you back at the same thing? Psychological safety people are nervous of conflict. Often the, the new the newer people are often not because they don't have as much baggage. So they're coming in saying, hey, well, you hired me to do X. I'm lead this business and so on. So I'll tell you what I think. That's often less of an issue. Often they jump to conclusions too quickly. So they don't get to know enough of the business, which is important. So, oh, I, I sort of think I know enough. I'll have a quick recce. And by the way, I'll leap to this conclusion, which misses out often lots of source of value. So they, they leap too quickly. Secondly, they don't necessarily spend enough time understanding how stuff gets done. So it's not just the sort of where the opportunities are, but how stuff gets done. So if you come up with a new idea, so I've gone through the interview process, I've been here for three months, I've got lots of ideas, fine. If you don't understand how people can help you get it get it done, then you're coming up with an idea that looks great on paper and it won't happen. So often it's, it's what I call being strategically impatient and you have to spend the time to do it. And secondly, I think you have to have due interest in your colleagues. And that's not so much about safety, but it's just about respect. So you see a lot of newcomers coming into organizations where you think, hey, I've come in, you know, classic one, I've come in from a, a startup or a tech company that's doing well or into a more traditional organization. I'm the hero. I'm the, here, the person to try and accelerate how good you are, become more innovative. And they don't show respect for the people who've actually got the organization to where it is. And that can create con conflict. I mean, I've been in that situation where we bought businesses and they're the shiny new thing. You think, hey, you know what? We're still making money. So how about we collaborate and talk to each other rather than, if you like, ignoring all your heritage and just going with the shiny new thing. So those are some of the things I think that often get in the way. And then those new employees or that bit of that business that we acquired is then is a failure. And you can then, you know, you can see organizations where this happens time and time again, where people go, there's no point in speaking to them for nine months because they probably won't last that long. You know, they're, they're another guy in that chair. Oh, look, they've behaved the same way. We'll just ignore them. They'll go away eventually. Yeah, integration of teams and businesses, I mean, is properly skillful. And I think often what happens is a lot of work is done to attract the business or the individual if you're recruiting them. And then when they're, when they land on the business, it's like, well, okay, show me how good you are. And it's like, well, no, no you, the work's just a bit like writing an article or something. You know, you write the article and you've done your work and you think, oh, I finished it now, or blog or whatever. I finished it now. Yes, you finished that phase of it. Now you have to share it with the world. Similarly, when you're buying a business, you've done the diligence, you bought the business, bought the team in. Now the hard work is how do you actually integrate it? 
and and create something better than any you know more than either the t- some of the two parts and that's the whole idea that's why you know and the mindset is well we're always good at this we'll just put a bit of icing on the cake or we'll rely on them to pull us up into this new 4.0 version of the world that we're in <laughs> and it's like well no the combination is the combination and that's where the tone comes from the top the tone from the top is so critical which is have respect for each other explore and understand what we all do and then pique your curiosity about what we can be, what we can become i think too often those stages of relationship building and connections are skipped in the rush and the impatience for results and so what what are some of those practical steps then in terms of an integration or an acquisition mm. yeah in ter- well in terms of those those relationships i think a starting point would be if you have some form of new team or new business, um, a CEO will have set parameters, of course, for where you're going. There's a structured conversation around, okay, given that, it links back to a previous conversation. What part of the conversation? Where do we think we should go? How do we win? Strategic questions. What do we need to master in terms of our activities or our capabilities that nobody else can do? And how do we change the way we work? If you have some simple questions that structure the focus of the organization or the team, and indeed, how do we change how we work, what you're doing is creating a, like a mini prototype of the next version of it, where people can, again, this is the mindset, so where people can contribute to it rather than, so it's a creative exercise, a bit like building a new product or a, a service, rather than it being a mine's better than yours, a sort of discussion. The mindset is we want to make something. We're makers, not just talkers. Also, you describe a team activity then rather than a set of silos. So, so often one of the things that I think gets in the way of that is sales are saying, I know about sales. Why don't you just stick to, I don't know, product delivery or development or HR or something and leave me to run sales? And likewise, everybody's thinking, I'm not going to complain about Fred because if I complain about Fred, then people will be having a go at me. I quite often go into organizations where those silos and that, that, that behavior is then quite deeply rooted. And so, you know, the, the management meeting is everybody turns up with 30 minutes of slides to explain how busy they are and leaves no time for questions because really they don't want any. And they all get out, they all get, they get out the management meeting and think, thank, thank God for that. I didn't get any tough questions again. It's a win. But imagine if an agenda was structured around questions rather than topics, or even if there was an agenda. So actually, the pre the the information you, that's being shared was a pre read if you needed it at all, and actually the meeting was around the synergies and the complementarities between the group, leaving the day to day silo work, which still plays a role, is left to outside the meeting. So the meeting is about a meeting of people, people coming together to explore. Okay. How can we collaborate differently? Or we've got a big commercial decision to make that affects the whole of the business. How can we share our perspectives? Too often, as you say, meetings are bringing a collection of individuals to represent and present and report upon their performance, as opposed to actually, and you go back and say, well, I knew all that already. Uh, I've got a few (laughs) nice questions. Yes, my profile is higher. And yes, there's more awareness of what I do, which can play a role. But if you ask the question of how we become, for example, more customer-centric, overused term, customer-centric organizations by design have to bring together those silos more than 
other organizations that don't, don't think in that way. If the conversation is, we've got a great opportunity for these customers to deliver this this service here or to this new, new product. They love our brand. They love what we do. How can we best work together to make that happen? Then you have a team setting. However, if you say, right, we've got a budget meeting. Everyone come and report their results. It's like, well, fine, thank, great, great theater. Actually, it's boring theater. But Well, and then what you get in the first one is uh, when everyone's doing the budget meeting, people certainly if they're on zoom are paying no attention because they they've got email open on another screen and in the meeting they've probably got their laptop open they may well be on email and they're certainly on whatsapp mm. and you may as well absolutely not be in the office if you're going to be like that i wrote a piece recently in at harvard business review on meetings and meetings are not about you know the the, the nitty-gritty of meetings but again apply more of a strategic approach and not enough time is spent thinking about the topic, the agenda, and when and why and who comes to meetings. And it doesn't take very long. I've done this exercise with many clients. You ask the question, so what's the problem you want to address? What outcome do you want from the discussion? And what questions do we need to ask? Right, ding, ding, ding. You can go through that pretty quickly if you switched on. You then ask the question, who should come? Not you know, not who ought to come, but who really should come? And that's who you know what division they come background what skills do we need what expertise think strategically about that and then you go through a process of making sure people have the right information to begin with setting up and framing that conversation as i mentioned earlier and then having a proper discussion and then very importantly closing closing well what have we decided what's outstanding and then after the closing i've done this with a ceo recently it said spend five minutes after the meeting reflecting on what you've learned not just doing the usual stuff of key points and actions reflecting on what you've learned and that could be what you've learned about the engagement of that team their ability to to tackle difficult problems their you know their appetite for more are they burnt out and i gave him a series of 10 sort of questions and he went from his summary i said how was that meeting he initially said oh, i was great everyone agreed we've got really clear actions went through the 10 questions he said Actually, I think they're they're overwhelmed. <laughs> and point is, it wasn't the questions are not together, but you've got to make the time. Those five literally was five minutes made the difference between the next set of meetings being a waste of time because people are just as you say going through one ear and out. To actually, uh, we need to take a break from this this rhythm and do something else. So my point being, meetings are a massive part of people's diaries and schedules. If you set them up better, if you think about who who should really come and what you should focus on, and you really close and reflect well, you make your return on investment of intention, attention, if you like, and energy and they just goes through the roof. But people go on autopilot. That's what happens. And they think their self-worth and their credibility in the organization is based on the volume of meetings in their day. I have a really busy day. <laughs> I've heard that one before. I have a really busy day. Back to back meetings. The answer, the, the, the response to that should be, what's going on? You know, that's not great. Well, we worked with an executive team a few years ago. And for what felt like a day, it was probably only half a day, we discussed whether doing email in a meeting was allowed or not allowed. Because some people felt violently that you're in a meeting. You sh if you're not, if you shouldn't be there, you shouldn't be there. You should say you're not coming. If it turns out to be a waste of your time, you should leave. 
And at the other extreme, you had people who turned up for meetings that they didn't need to be at, made no contribution, but it's when they actually got their email done, because if they're in a meeting, nobody would bother them. And so you had these sort of two extreme views of meetings, and it took half a day to get us to an agreement on what they ended up doing is they cancelled all their standing meetings and started again. Yeah, great. And they agreed that there was no tech on the table in a meeting. You see that one, just on that one, I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong because it's specific to the culture of the organisation, but I think it's about how you call out your what your your behaviours and your thinking. So I've been in some very, very, very high impact and high performance meetings where, especially under stressful or time pressure situations, where somebody firing off a quick email to somebody to get a bit of information or to send a message out in the context of a meeting can be really effective. But you've said explicitly what you're doing. Yes. Well, I was talking to somebody the other day who said what, that what they did is that uh, in their meeting, if you, people did, people were allowed tech, but if you called somebody out for it and, they, and you did catch them doing email, the drinks were on them. And if you called them out and it, they weren't doing email, the drinks were on you. It was just this sort of, they played this game about, do I think he's doing email or not? Or is he making notes? Don, it comes back to your default in in working life and i think the pandemic has challenged our defaults and our default has been either busyness or we start at getting super practical a one-hour meeting uh is a norm or a half an hour meeting imagine if you change the default to being i uh, will have meetings because they you know they play they play a role but they are by exception that's changing the default or they start at 10 minutes and they go upwards yeah right so you may still have the same types of meetings, but probably less frequent. But the point is, whenever you get into autopilot of that's the way we've done stuff, answer the question, what do I need to do my best work? And if half the meetings are not doing anything for you, in most cases, you could just stop them. But that comes back to trust. Trust between people that you can do that. Secondly, an inner confidence to do try and do the right thing. And thirdly, if you're really clear you have real clarity about what you want to achieve as an organization. We want to be the most creative organization in the world. We want to change the world here. We want to grow to, to deliver jobs in our community. Whatever the big goals are, often if you have the right people who can think about those big goals and then look into the business and saying, what's getting in the way of those goals? That's what leadership for me is about, is about which is clarity about the future and then a ruthless and a precision as to, Okay, what is stopping us from getting there? So I don't need five committees to approve an investment. I don't need to go through these steps. However, we have really clear parameters on risk, for example. The really high-performing leaders that I've, I've worked with and for um, have that on-the-business clarity. So what's the business trying to achieve and achieve? So the external perspective. And when they go deep into the detail, they say, right, I need that, that, and that. The rest of it? get rid of and they're ruthless about it if you're not clear however and you th- you're not clear about where you want to go and you think your performance is based on effectively refining your core business and just moving the deck chairs if you like then effectively you will probably win in the short term but at some point some newcomer will disrupt you with that fresher perspective more agile more agile organization and lighter organization too it's funny because i think one of our clients decided that one of their key things was hiring. So their time to fill or time to hire, CV to start date was 40 days. And so they said, right, we need, we're going to go to 20. So there was a whole load of reasons why that was impossible. 
but they worked through it as a team and they got to 20. And then they said, we're going to get it to 10. And they've got it to 10. And then they said, right, we're going to get it to four. So that through the moment somebody applies online, we can have somebody start in four days. And the person who was running that department said, look, this isn't for me. I'm not the person to take this from 10 to four. There you go. And that calls it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they haven't fallen out. I mean, she's leaving the organization, but it's not on, not as a bad lever, just because it's like, look, I, I obviously do not, I am not capable or have the skills to take it from 10 to four, but that was the thing that the team needed to fix. And so often in organizations, the, the team can't come together to solve a problem like that, which was cross-functional and, you know, cross-silo and really, really strategic for the organization. So when I hear CEOs go, oh, it's terrible, you know, I can't hire I just think how much of your week are you spending trying to solve this problem, right? You're just being busy. You haven't said this is actually really important to us. Exactly. So you prioritized it. That's a brilliant point. If you really prioritize something and you're really clear about the problem or the friction or the waste, and then you laser like say, we need to look at any solution internally, externally, you can often get to results quickly. I mean, look at the application of AI, for example, in and the equivalent would be, for example, mortgage loans and processing or other activities, which can take months uh, or, or at least weeks for any people. It's the similar example to one you just described, which is, okay, it takes too long. How can we do it better? Who has some perspectives? Now, there'll be people who'd be doing it in the current way. They'll say, oh, well, we could probably reduce the number of approvals to get there. Fine, fine, fine. You then invite new people into the process, for example, using artificial intelligence to do it. They come in new lens. And you need both, actually. But you bring the right people together, give them a big goal and say, why not? David, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? <laughs> I think be braver. I think there'll be moments in my career and life where uh, I probably intuitively knew what I wanted to do. Say, for example, leaving my previous firm, which I was very much enjoying, I sort of intuitively knew that I wanted to do something different. I wasn't unhappy, but I just wanted to do something different. But I was I don't think I was brave enough to make that decision because it's like, well, my identity was wrapped up in that big brand and that big role. So there's something about being braver and trusting yourself and not looking too much at either what others in the same role do or what people will think of you. It's very easy to sort of say, look and say, a person in my role and background does X or Y, or this is the path. Like, well, that's the path of other people. I can make my own mind up. Okay. And what books have been an inspiration to you or do you recommend clients to read? So I'm, I've just finished a book called How to Begin by Michael Bungay-Stania, uh, who I like and rate and enjoy his company. And it's, and it's relevant for me. It's about setting goals, big, hairy. He calls them worthy goals. And it's relevant for me because I, I have some big goals and I have quite big constraints on my time. And it's sort of, how do you lift yourself above the day-to-day -day actions and targets to something that in the next five or 10 years I can really focus on? And that's a life goal in terms of our family, what we do, and, and also perhaps a book that's in the making. So that's one thing I've really enjoyed. There's a book, Creative Destruction, which I've reread by Gary Pisano. He's a Harvard professor, uh, and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Gary, I rate very highly. He looked at the paradoxes of innovative cultures. And for me, it's spoken a language where everybody says everything's sort of very one one way. We've got to be faster, flatter, more candid, and so on. He said, well, actually, the reality is you, you can't. So, for example, empowerment, which I mentioned, 
I, I empower you to do X, right? That sort of big statement that people make. That comes with responsibility. You can't just, you know, oh, give me the keys to this. It's like, well, okay, then do something with them. And he called out a number of these paradoxes that actually characterize innovative cultures in a way that I haven't seen before. Because often you read things where you go, oh, you be be creative and amazing, fast, agile. So, well, okay, but or or be caring. For, that's the one at the moment. Be caring. Okay. Be caring and candid. Not that's not how exactly how he describes it, but you can be caring for somebody about how they how they operate, how they work, how they progress their career by giving them really direct feedback, which can be hard to hear. Oh yeah, Kim Scott, radical candor. She said she said she thinks now she should have called it radical caring, but if she'd called it that, it wouldn't have been a bestseller. She said, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So those are two business, but I'm, I'm I go through different phases of reading, but I'm I'm reading a book on and I'll forget the name, but it's around. It's more the topic. I'm re- on grief actually. As if you and I don't want to bring bring the tone down, but <laughs> when you have a d- disabled son, very disabled son, there's quite a lot of grieving for the life you lost, and it's been quite a journey in trying to understand yourself and understand where you're going in life. And the book is not a business book at all. But it is relevant to the business world where often when we think about our careers and we think about where an organization may go, we hold on too much to what our expectations of the old might have been. Oh, I was always good at this. I always expected to have this. Or I expected my organization to be the best. Well, the world's changed. Conditions have changed. And so that's been illuminating for me, and both in terms of a personal sense and uh, and a professional sense. David, thank you very much for that. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.